Hello, channel pros. Welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. I'm Rob Spee, your cycling and sailing fanatic and host of Channel Journeys. Speaking of sailing, I am fresh back from a bucket list sailing adventure. I finally got to charter a catamaran and sail the Grenadines, the southern Caribbean islands that stretch from Grenada to St. Vincent. It was such an amazing trip. I think I'll turn it into a Christmas special podcast like I did last year with my Virgin Islands sailing adventure. So stay tuned. You'll hear more about it. Just before leaving for Grenada, I was up in Nashville for the Ingram One event. Tiffany Bovo was one of the keynote speakers talking about the subject of her latest book, The Experience Mindset. I don't know if you know who Tiffany is. She was a distinguished analyst at Gartner for 10 years. Now she's the growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. She's the host of the What's Next podcast and a best-selling author. And Tiffany is high on the list of thought leaders and influencers in our industry. Seeing Tiffany reminded me of the fun interview I did with her way back on episode 40 for my one-year anniversary of Channel Journeys. We talked about her book, Growth IQ, and the new thinking required to grow your business. And her tips are just as relevant and useful today as they were back then, so I'm relaunching that episode today. Before we dive into my conversation with Tiffany, I want to give a shout out to Partner, the sponsor of Channel Journeys. Building a partner ecosystem requires a powerful partner management solution. With a global user base of over 4 million partners, Impartner is recognized as a global leading provider of partner management technologies. And Impartner specializes in cutting edge solutions for PRM, partner relationship management, as well as PMA, partner marketing automation. Their platform is built around best practices and sophisticated automation that enables partner teams like yours and ours to quickly move from program operations to maximum time to value. And they offer a key ingredient for growth, that automation. All right, are you ready to hear how to apply the growth IQ to your channel business? Let's go. This is Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals. Here you will meet and learn from channel experts who share their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, channel chief, and adventure seeker, Rob Spee. Well, Tiffany, welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. It's been a pleasure reading your books and following you on LinkedIn, and now to finally get a chance to talk to you. I'm really excited about this and want to talk about Growth IQ and, and how it relates to the channel. I would have been remiss had I written a book and it not have a channel angle, right? People would think she definitely didn't write it. <laughs> it doesn't say something about the channel, right? I, I mean, I think ultimately, I often joke I'm a recovering seller, but at the end of the day, you know, I grew up in the channel selling technology, working for value-added resellers and distributors and telcos, agents and, you know, consulting firms. And so it's kind of all I knew in selling technology. And so when I was coming up with the 10 paths to growth, I actually allocated two specifically of the 10 to quote unquote, the channel. One of them was just partnerships in general, you know, and one of the examples that I use in there is VCE, the partnership between VMware, Cisco and EMC back in the day. Right. And then the other chapter was coopetition, which was, you know, working with, you know, companies that, you know, you, you may otherwise compete against, but in the spirit of delivering 
better solutions to customers, you know, having to work with people who you, you know, may in fact compete against. And so those two very specifically were highlighted and called out in Growth IQ. Yeah, I was very happy to see that. And as I was reading the book, I was looking at the 10 growth paths and almost every one of them, I could apply to my channel business in different ways. And I liked how you combined those two that you mentioned with other growth paths and you can use them in concert. But before we jump into that, Tiffany, I've got to do one thing first. So I love your What's Next podcast. And you always start off with a, a fun game of bullish and bearish. I do. So I'm going to turn it around on you. And I've got three questions for you to answer whether you think it's bullish or bearish. All righty. I'm ready. All right. You should be. All right. Number one, indirect channels for as a service companies, bullish or bearish? I've always been bullish. Always been bullish. Excellent. Me too. But we got some work to do in, in the industry to get everyone else bullish on this. Well, I think it's I'm bullish for the fact that it's an opportunity and potential. I'm mixed on whether the channel has always been willing to embrace that opportunity or not. Those are two different things. Gotcha. Yeah. Good distinction. Okay. Number two, automation of the channel account manager. Will they be, will the cam be replaced by technology? No. Bearish. Bearish. Good to hear. Good to hear for, especially for all the channel managers that listen to this show. All right. Third one, personal brands, bullish or bearish? You know, I get asked this a lot, right? Because I work for a very large company at Salesforce, obviously. And then, you know, people know who I am separately as well as the book. And so, you know, where does one start and one end, I guess, you know, I'd say, well, personally, I'd say I'm bullish because I hopefully, you know, I, I'm, I'm working towards that, but I don't know if a person can have a brand, but I understand the question. I, I just think yeah. that, you know, ultimately I think it's important for people to know who you are and what you stand for and, and sort of what your superpower is. And I think, you know, that's what I hope I do every day. Yeah. And it's linked to being an influencer, isn't it, within your company and in the market? I think it is. And, you know, I think that, you know, prior to working at Salesforce, I worked at Gartner and, you know, Gartner obviously has a massive brand similar to what Salesforce has. And so I never, ever, even today, make the mistake of thinking that my brand is larger than the brands I work for. I think I get benefit from where I work and opportunity and access that I would not get alone, you know, as just Tiffany Bova from Tiffany Bova's consulting shop. And there's some benefit there, I think, both ways. But I think that it's important that, you know, the value that you bring to the market is understood both internally and externally. Yeah. And I think you've done an awesome job and it landed you, a, seems like a dream job for you at, at Salesforce, this growth and innovation evangelist position, which sounds like the coolest job ever. I'm fortunate and very blessed. You know, they created a role for me to really kind of continue the work that I had been doing at, at Gartner with a little bit of a spin. Obviously, we're not an analyst and research house in that way, and we don't advise in that way. But in many, in many of the day-to-day -day activities I do, it's very similar. You know, I talk to customers about transformation, innovation, using technology to help them sell, you know, either directly or with or through partners or what are the new models that are coming up. Those are very similar conversations. And while I don't write research reports anymore, you know, now I do it in blogs and podcasts and other mediums. And I do probably 10 times as much. Oh, that's probably too much of an exaggeration. I probably do three times as much public speaking than I did when I was with Gartner. But, you know, ultimately it's very similar. And I can say that what's been really great for me is I've been able to get closer 
to the actual roles I was advising about, you know, before mm. I was sort of always flying at the executive level. And now I can go from the executive level down to individual contributors and, you know, sit on a sales floor or listen in a sales meeting or speak at a sales kickoff meeting and you really hear what's going on. And, and that's been really exciting. Yeah. That's the fun part, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, let's get back to growth IQ. So you mentioned in the beginning, you have two sections or two growth paths that relate to channels. One is partnerships. And back to my first bullish and bearish question, I get a sense in talking to SaaS CEOs that many of them are hesitant or uncertain how to leverage the channel. Why do you think that is? Do you think they understand why and when to partner? Yeah. So I started actually having this conversation eight or nine years ago, literally. And yeah, let me, let me back up for a second. I, you know, in 2000 to 2004, I was working for the largest web hosting company in the US. The name of the company was Interland. We were about four times the size of Rackspace. We were a Loquas beta client. We were selling via chat. It was a recurring revenue subscription business of domain names and web hosting, both shared as well as now, you know, dedicated in many ways. We were very early doing virtual private servers, kind of a la VMware, and we were doing infrastructure as a service, as an ASP or an ISP, depending on you know how well you know that market. We were doing a lot of those things really, really early. And I remember standing at a channel company event for VAR Business and CRN at the time in 2002 and saying, hey, look, you know, you don't really need to have lunch with your servers. There's no reason why if you're reselling servers and storage, why you can't just do it for us in the internet. You know, it, we didn't have all the words we use today, right? Mm -hmm. You know, cloud and infrastructure as a service, et cetera. And it was like, I had three heads. And so I knew that the market was going to move that way. I didn't know what vendors were going to own the space. And if you remember early on, it was like, you know, some of the very large hardware manufacturers were trying to build out their own clouds. That's right. Right. And then it was, well, no, why don't we just partner to do it? You know, and, and do we really need a branded, you know, server or can we do white box? And so that, that really changed it. But ultimately, you know, fast forward when I was at Gartner, it was my responsibility to then help these big brands understand, okay, well, how am I going to shift this channel that has been so reliant on the resale model? You know, I buy out of distribution, I buy at a wholesale price, I resell to the customer, I make some margin, and then I deploy, implement, and then I support, and I do break fix, and then I do lifecycle management, right? Replace and do it again. Mm -hmm. And it, depending on whatever the hardware was, you know, those life cycles used to be much longer, and then they became much shorter over time. But when we started having that conversation, I actually broke the channel up into what I called three swim lanes. And you had partners who were just going to sort of optimize what they were doing today. Like, I'm just going to be the best at reselling, you know, like, how can I eke out every little MDF fund and co-op dollar and margin that I have, you know, the, the, the sort of install move ad change and the break yeah. fix business, our rate was declining. And so how do I keep that business model going? Then you had some partners who said, I need to sort of transform a little bit and I'm going to introduce some cloud services, you know, and early on it was like, well, if I'm a Microsoft reseller, right, am I going to do BPOS? Let's, I'm really going to date this, right? Or S plus S. And then it became Office 365. What does that look like? And then oh, AWS is like, we're going to go after these kinds of resellers that and try to bring them along in the journey. And then you had people like pure play SaaS providers, like a Salesforce going, well, hold on. We don't actually resell. Like, how does this work? And then there was a third category of partner that were really born in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And that was this sort of 
you know, the push from a born in the cloud, you know, the pull from a traditional on-prem reseller. And in the middle was a group of partners that were going to go on this journey of saying, I want to transition to have more as a service. And then as a service guys, companies saying, do I actually want to do anything on-prem? And, and they were very ISV oriented, consulting, coding, you know, development oriented. And so they may have to develop in order to make a cloud-based SaaS service integrate with a back office ERP system. And so you have to understand how to do APIs and integration points and, you know, companies like Boomi was purchased by Dell and, you know, all these things to try to make everything work seamlessly. And I'd say today, those three swim lanes are alive and well. (laughs) And that's why the answer to your question is when vendors have to figure out, do we want a partner the question is, well, what kind of partner do you need? Do you need an ISV consulting partner? Do you need a resale partner? Do you need an integration partner? You know, what kind of partner? And I think that's what really challenged the traditional hardware and software manufacturers, the OEMs, was can I actually transition and transform my existing channel to embrace these new products and services I'm launching? And it continues to be a challenge. I think it's a challenge, not just for the partners, but for traditional channel chiefs like me, I came out of that reseller model. That was my swim lane for much of my career. Now I'm working for a development platform as a service company, OutSystems. Our CEO is 100% convinced that he needs the channel, but he, he's looking at it from your first growth path, path, which is customer experience. He wants our channel to deliver the adoption and integration and and IP that we don't provide. So they can provide, you know, vertical IP, horizontal IP, and build solutions on top of what we create we provide as a platform. So it's a totally different channel for us, for me as a channel chief. I think that there's a couple of things happening. You know, the expectation of a CEO like saying, I this is the kind of channel I want, you know, you have to understand that there's a heavy investment that a channel partner has to make in order to do everything you just described, right? Mm -hmm. The skills that are required to resell, implement, install, move, add, change, break, fix, you know what I'm saying? Like the certifications and everything that goes along with that traditional business is very different than you need somebody who understands today, right? It could be no code, low code, a little bit of code, total code, understanding, you know, cloud management platforms and master data management platforms and pulling data from multiple sources. It's a very different skill set. And so it's expensive if you think about the average channel partner, and I'm just speaking in the US, I mean, there's, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I'm going to reach back into my, you know, brain power here, but let's call it a hundred partners in the US that are larger than a hundred million. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and then the average partner below that, if there's 100,000 partners in the US, like 99,000 of them are smaller than 25 million. And the average of that 25 million, let's call it 5 million. And I'm, don't anybody send me emails and say that's totally, I'm <laughs> swagging these numbers, but I'm right. guessing I'm pretty directionally correct. Okay. So if you say that, then you go, well, gosh, I'm a $5 million partner. I have a healthy business. I, you know, I'm a lifestyle guy. We make enough profitability, you know, sort of all of those things. Then at the end of the day, you know, how do you expect them to make investments to hire a completely different skill set with a totally different business model, with a completely different finance and capital intense? You know, everything's different. So that's why those integration points between those two partners types 
is really tough because if you look at the partners that have been able to make a really solid hybrid kind of business model, right, where they have a big successful on-prem biz and also have a big and successful cloud business. And I don't mean just at the office layer, you know, so, Mm -hmm. you know, I used to sell on-prem and now I sell the same in a cloud model. I mean, really building up a practice and having um, all the things that you need. Initially, it was early on, it was, you could see it was always partners larger than 50 million. And I go back to that. How do you get the smaller channel companies to make those kinds of investments? Do they just sell the traditional business and stand up a brand new business? You know, can they afford to do hybrid? I mean, I think those questions are all still valid. Yeah, I think they are. You make an interesting statement in your book. You say future needs require future partner models. Are there, are we talking about that? Or are there some additional partner models that you're thinking of that would be, that are coming in the future? No. And I think it goes back to, you know, what I was saying about thinking differently about, so I'm going to, let me step back in time. I remember it had to be, okay, like 12 years ago now, or 13 years ago now ish, when CDW tried to stand up a program to let other resellers use them, you know, like go ahead and bring your customers to us and the things that you don't, you know, you're not able to sell on your own and we will co-sell. And I said to CDW at the time, like, it, it's just never going to fly. No one's going to trust you, they, right? Because they'll be like, oh, now you know who my customer is. You're going to take the business. And right there, the big, bad 800 pound gorilla. And now would you say, would that work today? Would smaller partners have advantage in just getting referral fees for the hardware business and really focus on the services business so that they don't give up their customers, but they're not trapped in this asset, labor intensive, low margin, you know, competitive space. And so would they work in that cooperative competition kind of arrangement today differently than they might in the future? Would VCE be more successful today? Is What's the next VCE? What's the next Wintel arrangement, right? If you look across in other industries and automotive is one example, does everyone have to develop a battery? Does everyone have to develop, you know, AI technology and, you know, visual and security and the apps for the car? Or will it be that, you know, it's kind of like the USB drive. It doesn't matter what manufacturer, everybody uses USB, right? So yeah. is there standardization that we can take across that, that then creates that cooperation becomes the new partnering model that you're not afraid that you say, look, if I'm going to constantly service my customer in a way that separates me, introducing someone else, I'm not at risk. I'm not worried because they trust me. I'm a trusted advisor, like you know, some small businesses. I am their CIO. I am their IT department. Like It's my role to make sure that I'm delivering for them. And as organizations get bigger, it becomes different, right? You're working with you know, people that are really in the supply chain that are saying, look, you know, I'm going out and I'm sourcing this and I'm looking for the best price. That's a very different equation. But I think the business models will absolutely have to shift. Well, and that's a great segue. So the business model of co-opetition, which is another one of your 10 growth paths, this idea that one plus one can equal three, which is counterintuitive for a lot of people when they think about their competitor. Absolutely. And so then, you you know, it, it's interesting because people will say, okay, if I ask you, like, who's your competition, right? And you'll rattle off. I'm not, I'm not asking you to say it, right? But if you go, yeah. look, company A, B, and C are our competition. And I go, well, are they really your competition? And people go, well, yeah, of course, because we're always in deals fighting for each other. And I go, well, let me just step back a second. Do they have your employees? Do they have your culture? Do they have your other customers? Do they have your, you know, no, they don't. 
you may compete at that one particular layer, but in reality, competition is coming from all different places. So I'm much more interested in saying like, you know, in, especially like in growth IQ, it's kind of the one plus one equals three model. And it means you have to view, okay, if I look at the pie I'm trying to serve, do I need to have all the resources and own them and all the capabilities and own them and all the everything and own them, right? Or do I say, you know what, these three would be better served if I partnered to deliver it. And then, you know, this, and so maybe I start hiring project managers, like really high powered project managers, change management kinds of resources. And I am the master of the chessboard, but I don't have to worry about every little piece. And that's a very different model. Do you think that the shift in the marketplace where customers today, they don't want to buy products, they want to buy business outcomes. And business outcomes require integration and combination of many different products. Is that, do you think that's what's driving the need for more co-opetition by vendors? Yeah. And I mean, there's, if you spend any time in my book and the hence why I put customer experience at the front of growth IQ is that every decision behind every decision you make should be a customer. So working from the outside in would give you a very different answer to that question than if you're working inside out, right? Inside out is I have to own it. I need to do it. If we don't do it, nobody does it. I own the customer. It's all about sort of, this is my process. This is the way we do it. That's very sort of internally focused versus saying, hold on a second. My customer really wants to buy an outcome. So since we all live in the world of tech, I would press any partner out there to say that from end to end, you were able to deliver everything for a solution. Like you're not a telco. So is it AT&T? Is it Verizon? Is it T-Mobile, Comcast, right? So you're not them. You're doing the networking deployment, but you don't own the pipes. And then you're doing networking. And once it leaves networking and then it makes it to the mobile device, well, are you selling and servicing the mobile device? Right. I mean, you're not doing everything end to end. It's always this mixed bag of providers that are delivering it. And so the expectation is if I'm really going to buy an outcome, like I want a customer service solution, you know, in order to, you know, handle customers that may contact us you know, across chat or phone or email or just in person, the outcome is I want to serve my customers faster in customer service, right? That's the outcome. But if you think about a, you know, an, an agent console, the, where's the data coming from, the mobile device, right? The CRM mm -hmm. system, all these things, you may not own all of it, but they're buying that outcome from you. You have to be the one that turns around and looks backwards and goes, okay, who do I need to pull into this deal? And that's why I said, is it a change management resource? Is it a high-powered project manager that's managing multiple resources and or multiple companies? And then the partnering model, I remember when Cisco tried to do this, where they tried to pull partners together in a formal way to create that so that partners could deliver a comprehensive solution at the enterprise layer, but one person was the prime and then there were subs underneath it and creating the framework by which they could work together and who owned the customer, who built the customer, what's, you know, all those things that layer underneath it. And, and it's that's never really been solved. And I think a lot of that has to do with the mindset of partners feeling like they own the customer. And, you know, my opinion is the only person that owns the customer is the customer. You service the customer. And so how can you service them in a way that's frictionless and seamless and you make it easy to do business with you? And that may mean you have to work, you know, across the aisle. Yeah. You mentioned some examples of, of successful coopetition partnerships like the Wintel partnership. 
with Microsoft and Intel. But then you, you also mentioned some failed partnerships. I thought the, the VCE one was pretty interesting. Why did that, why was that not successful at the end of the day? I almost don't think, you know, and I think I framed it this way in the book. I don't think it wasn't successful. I think it, it sort of played out in its lifespan. Okay. You know, just because it's it works at a certain point in time doesn't mean it's going to work forever. And I think it filled a gap in the market. I mean, it became a billion dollar company. I mean, that obviously it worked. And there was yeah. a pain point for customers saying like, look, if we're going to buy from VMware, we're going to buy from EMC and we're going to buy from Cisco. Going back to your question a minute ago, I want to buy a solution. I don't want to buy three pieces and have to figure out how to put it together. And if you guys can't figure out how to put it together in a way that it's compatible and it's integrated and it works and what's the service and all those things... How do you expect us to, quote unquote, the customer, right? Saying us. And so I think that it it lived out its its lifespan. And because technology changed and things shifted and, you know, Dell bought EMC and VMware and Cisco decided to make investments and other, you know what I'm saying? Like it was a point in time. And so it isn't that you have to partner forever or that one solution is kind of one and done. And, you know, Wintel's one that has continued on for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think, I mean, I hope I didn't portray in there that it failed. I think one that made decisions that were going down the line, kind of what we think, okay, well, who owns the customer? Who's supporting the customer? Who's the lead? How do we pull together disparate sellers from each of those brands? What about the disparate channel partners from each of those brands? It was the devil was in the details in that one. Yeah. But ultimately at the end, the customer was like, look, this, and it was really very customer driven trying to solve that problem. But then the mechanics of it get in the way. Well, wait a minute. We own, no, you don't own. I'm not going to tell you, you know, and if you're not willing to share, that's why one of the examples I did was the airline industry in using like airline miles and code shares between competing airlines to make me as a flyer able to go from Hawaii to Los Angeles, to London, to Barcelona, to South Africa, back to Los Angeles on five different airlines. And it's seamless for me. Yeah. I love that when they introduce that. Yeah. And, and so, but you think before that it was, I'd have to get off a plane, get my bag, get on it. You know what I mean? There was no coordination. And if they only thought about themselves and not us as customers, it never would have happened. And so you could argue, well, I could take a American Airlines tailed plane or a BA tailed plane in order to go to London. And I get miles on American either way. That's a beautiful thing, right? And so, and even I'm going to tail a BA flight, you know, it's BA 123 and it's a American Airlines 456 and it's the same plane. And so there's no way that you could do that if those two airlines weren't saying, look, there are you know, parts of the market where we may compete like that one leg, but the second you get into Europe, American Airlines is out. So BA has to pick up. And when BA lands in the US, BA is out, you know? And so, but for me as a customer, it, it continues the service, right? Because the service for me, the job to be done is to get me from point A to point B. So in this realm, what you're saying, the lesson here for the audience is start with the desired outcome. What business outcome you the customer wants and then work backwards to figure out how does he get there? What combination of products or services does he need in, in addition to what you have? Right. And then you have to say, what's the most cost-effective, seamless, efficient, you know, all of those things, way for me to solve it. And mm -hmm. the age old, do I build it? Do I buy it? Or do yes. I partner? I mean, right? Do I build it myself? And hire five people that cost $150,000 each, and I have to hire them and get them upskilled. 
Do I find a boutique company that doesn't compete with me in any other way? And do I partner with them? And maybe we date for a while and then I decide to buy. You know what I mean? So right. it's still the age old question. And for for vendors, it's still the same question, right? Do I build this capability on my own? Do I partner to deliver it a la VCE, right? And do I buy it? Which ended up being kind of <laughs> the Dell model in that scenario. But you see that all the time. And so you will see companies go, look, we're going to partner. Oh, the relationship works really well. Our customers value this partnership and the information and the products and services we're selling. And so, you know, what are the things that we need to do in order to make that work? And so I think it's still the age old question. And for channel chiefs, it's the same thing. Do I build the capability? Do I partner for the capability? And it could be anything from your technology, right? Like how do I manage my partners, my partner right. portal, my MDF funds, my co-op dollars? Do I build some tool to do that? Or do I use someone else's? I like in your book, I think it's at the very beginning, you point out, okay, there are 10 common growth paths to success or growing your company, but it's never just one thing typically, right? It's a combination of these growth paths that, that companies execute. Yes. So I'd say in there that, you know, the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. And so, you know, I just want to highlight to, to everyone listening that, you know, I've tossed out a lot of examples and you're sort of, you've got a lot of things coming out and you're like, look, I'm just looking for the answer. And if I put my old hat back on as an analyst, I used to get asked all the time, like, I'm looking for that answer, Tiffany, what's the answer? And, and I feel now I have a little bit different of a kind of a lot different of a position than I did then, which was, I would sort of say, here's what I think you should do. Mm -hmm. Because if this is what your competition is doing, this is what others in your you know category are doing. Here's some best practices. Like let's kind of replicate, enhance and outperform, right? Now I almost go, well, hold on a second. Before I answer that question, I start out in the book by telling, tell me the context of the market. Like what's the context of the market? Who are your customers? How do they like to buy? Where uh, do you see the greatest growth? Who are your most profitable customers? Where do you get them from? You know, and I start asking a series of questions and it brings you to a very different answer. And so that's why the one thing about growth is it's not one thing. So if you are listening and you have a product or a service and you're trying to scale it or grow, it isn't just partnerships. It isn't just competition. It isn't just customer experience. It isn't just getting better about selling. It's all of them. But the trick is, and kind of the aha moment for me in writing the book and kind of the, the big thing that was unique in Growth IQ was the sequence in which you do things has huge implications into you know, how effective it is. Interesting. I, I, so, because I was wondering, can you be doing, trying to do too many things? Like if, if we're, we as a company are trying to do all 10, is that too much? Do we need to focus on just a few of them or is it more, we need to do all 10, but it's getting them in the right sequence? Yeah, I don't know if you need to do all 10, right? But, and I would never recommend everybody do them at one time. And sort of the last case study in the book was I, I took Amazon through its kind of entire existence and I see them map through all 10 paths at very different times. Yeah. And there was one path that was still left untapped at the time that I wrote the book, which was unconventional strategies, sort of, you know, the purpose over profit and doing well by doing good. And I think that uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon has gotten much better on that topic. But when that was written, it, it wasn't quite in their you know vocabulary at that point. But but I would say that, you know, ultimately, if you think about it, it's you will overwhelm your people if you try to do too many things. You know, there's only one one, meaning like what's your one priority? Yeah. And, and what's going to give you the biggest bang? And if you kind of go, 
well, here's the three things I want you focused on. You know that they're only, you you know, your resources are going to focus on where they're most comfortable, what they know, what they're doing. And so two of them will always suffer. And so I think that reading the book, doing a map of what are you currently investing in, what's working and not working, start to divest from things that are no longer working and really making the hard decisions and then seeing what's going to give you short, medium and long-term payback. Because for example, many small technology providers used to say to me, I'm just going to go partner with a global SI, you know, pick one, right? An Accenture, Kenzie, you know, pick one. And that's going to be my ticket to growing fast. And I go, you might sign that deal tomorrow. You won't see returns on it for years. So you have to have a long-term play. Like, let's go back to the swim lanes. Like mm-hmm. I'm in one lane and Michael Phelps is in another lane. We're going to be swimming up and back. You know, he's going to lap me when I'm a quarter of the way through the first, right? <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> okay. So if you think about that, right, and you have six lanes going at the same time, they're all going at different speeds, right? And so you can't have everything going slow and you can't have everything going fast. It has to be this cadence of enough for your organization to be able to breathe and absorb the change that's happening. And so you have to pick which one is going to be the steady state. So like partnering with a global SI is a long-term play. It's a steady state commitment. You know, we have, but you have to invest a lot of time, a lot of people, a lot of resources, and you might get a deal. Is that where you should be focused or should you go find three sort of mid-tier SIs that are going to be much hungrier in the vertical and industry that you sell into and go for a mid-tier SI instead of a global SI and, and get some learnings underneath you so that you can, you know, while you're still sort of developing the bigger one. But if you only think that, everything is going to give you a payback in 60, 90 days or six months or even 12 months. That's where the hard conversations have to happen. I think that's where the biggest mistakes actually happen. Yeah. Interesting. I like also how you combine different growth strategies. So from partnerships or coopetition, combining that with other growth paths, one is product expansion. That's something we're looking at. We're looking at expanding our products from a platform to actual vertical apps, you know, an, an app for the credit union, an app for the dentist's office and, and leveraging partners to do that product expansion for and with us. Yeah. And, and so the question is, okay, so let's let, and one of the examples I use, right, product expansion. So let's say you want to expand into, you know, I'm picking it, right, an international market. Do you just like, you know, turn it on one day or do you say, hold on a second, like, do we have sales resources in region? Do we have the website translated? Do we have support open for those hours? Do we have partners in place to do deployment or do we just launch in Spain? And that's what I mean by sequence. Yeah. And, you know, you cannot just lift and shift what you do in the U.S. for sure and take it to another country, even if it's just English speaking. And one of the examples in the book is... Mattel with Barbie having failed like three times in China, taking Barbie exactly how they take it in the US and trying to do that in China. It just didn't work. And so fourth time was a charm. They did the things they should have done. And so, you know, ultimately this is making sure going back to that, you've got to know the context of wherever you're going to expand. And I always say, look, if you don't own a hundred percent of the market you're currently in, (laughs) do you really want to expand? Or do you want to figure out how do I get more of the market I'm in 
instead of complicating it, unless you have customers that are like demanding that you get out of your home region or industry, you know, so not just because you want to, but are, is there a customer pull because pushing a new product into a new market is far more expensive than getting the pull that's on there because of what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. The other one I wanted to ask you about, you have optimizing sales. That's a growth path in itself, but you kind of caution folks from a partner or channel perspective about not underestimating the level of pushback you might get from the sales teams. Yes. Salespeople are funny. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I think that once again, going back to one of the very first things I said, you know, I, I call myself a recovering seller. I sort of, you know, every day I bleed the sales blood of trying to make sure that people that are out there with sales in their role or title or kind of their day to day are successful. And I would tell you that for sure, what got us here is not going to get us there. And back to your bullish and bearish, do I think people will be replaced? No, as long as they're adding value. The sort of busy work um, that should be automated and technology can help free up some of the time for sellers, both direct and indirect, to spend more time doing what they were hired to do. I mean, there's a stat that it's like 66% of a seller's time is spent on non-selling activities. Yeah. Number one. Number two, 50 plus percent of salespeople will miss quota this year, right? Or every year. So if I could take 20% off of the non-selling time and give it back to a seller, you would make the assumption that their quota attainment would go up, right? Mm -hmm. And so for a salesperson who um, pushes back on technology or thinks like it's a waste of my time, or it's not going to make me more efficient, it slows me down. Once again, it's not about you. It's about, it's not possible for you to know, remember, and keep on top of everything your customers need from you at scale if you're selling you know, any kind of volume or a highly complex deal. So using technology, I think, is the competitive differentiator between a very successful sales organization and one that struggles. I see it day in and day out because obviously where I work, you know, customer relationship management, CRM is one piece of it, but it's not all of it. And so it is really about using the data, using the analytics, using the intelligence to actually do something different than you would have without it. And it's all about how do you make those engagements with your customers more value-based and not just satisfying things that customers now are more than happy to just do on their own. Yeah. And I think that automation from a channel perspective, number one, you can offload all those administrative burdens that even channel account manager might waste 50, 60% of their time on. So free them up to do more productive things that drive revenue, but also it it provides more data that I think you can share with the sales team and more information to share with the sales team to reduce that resistance that you find in sales. Yeah. And and listen, I think, you know, a lot of the resistance is just the natural human reaction. Am I going to be replaced? Yeah. It's never going to do it as, you know, I've been selling flesh to flesh, handshake, handshake, eyeball to eyeball for 20 years. I'm not changing. And I trust me. Trust me, I understand. But this has less to do with our sales process. It has definitely has less to do with what you're selling. It has everything to do with how your customers feel when they engage with you. Yeah. Do they feel it's valuable? Do they feel that you're sharing information they could get on their own? Do they feel when you show up, all you're doing is selling? You know, Are you adding value? Now, I'm not talking in a high transaction, kind of, you know, low commodity. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Those, Those should be as automated as possible. Now, I'm talking about where customers are going to need something from you, even if it's only when there's 20 or 25% of their buyer journey left, 
that's where deals are won or lost. So you have to show up more informed and you just cannot do it at scale without the use of technology. I just don't believe that it's possible. Yeah. I think that's probably a great place to wrap this up, Tiffany, with that question, are you adding value? So something we should all be asking ourselves, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I would have, that we would have talked about? No, I mean, no, I think the one thing that I'm always fascinated by, and I'd, and I'd love to actually hear from any of your listeners that are willing to share, you know, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and drop me a note or or on Twitter. But, you know, ultimately, it's like, I'd love to hear what people think the partner of 2023 or 2025 is going to look like, you know, we're, we're almost at the end of a decade and between, you know, 2010 and 2020, it's been crazy. Like, it, yeah. it's been crazy. From everything that's changed from a technology standpoint, a customer standpoint, the power of mobile and social and data, it's just overwhelming. Everything we can do on our smartphones, this ubiquity of and access to technology and, and the unbanked or banked, and there's more cell phones than toothbrushes. And, you know, we're right on the cusp of the fifth. And I mean, it's nuts. And I think 10 years ago, the born in the cloud guys were the ones that were sort of the next model. And you asked me, what do I think is next? You know, what, what is the next born in the cloud? Is, are we going to go back and it's just going to be pure play consultants because so much of the technology is going to be happening from the vendors and it'll be integration and consulting is resale going to continue? What's the role of distribution and how can smaller businesses get access to all this technology that the enterprise has and has had, you know, in a more digestible way. It's just fascinating. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. That's a lot of great content. I hope all our listeners will read Growth IQ and apply it in the channel to their business. It's a fun book to read and so many great lessons in there. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's always, you know, great to talk about the channel. I miss it so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, always good to have you back to talk about the channel and best of luck in that great job that you've got there. Oh, well, thanks so much. Thanks to all the listeners as well. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure. Wow, I really enjoyed hearing my conversation with Tiffany again. She has such great advice. I'll have to try to get her on the show to chat about her new book, The Experience Mindset, and how to apply that to channels. You may have noticed I was working for OutSystems back when I did this interview. Of course, now I'm with Beyond Trust, where we have a full-on partner ecosystem strategy that's interwoven into our overall go-to-market strategy. And I'm going to make sure that we're leveraging her advice in our growth strategy. For all of today's show notes with Tiffany's five channel growth paths, just go to channeljourneys.com slash CJ124. You can subscribe while you're there so you don't miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, Impartner. Be sure to check them out at impartner.com. I have another fun episode for you coming up next time with two very prominent channel pros. You're going to like it. Until then, have an awesome channel journey.